We're going to be continuing our series looking, we've entitled this last uh, three weeks, including today, Authentic Faith. What we mean by that really is, uh, we've been looking at the beginning of the book of Colossians, and uh, in that book, in the first chapter really, Paul sets out something of the core essentials of the Christian faith. Um, And we're on the third week, and we're looking at what I've entitled Authentic Leadership. We're looking at really what, what is the nature of Christian leadership. So if you want to turn to Colossians 1... Um, if you've got a church Bible, can you just tell me the page reference? That'd be great. I've got a different one. 1715. If you've got a church Bible, page 1715. We're going to turn to that. Um, really, Paul is giving us something a more model in this passage um, of Christian leadership. He's describing his own ministry. And in doing so, he's really showing us what Christian leadership should look like. Now, if you don't know Paul, really, he's um, the Christian leader par excellence. He is uh, a man who's planted a number of churches throughout uh, Europe and Asia. He's written a good chunk of the New Testament. Uh, probably, with the exception of Jesus, probably would be uh, the, the leading Christian leader, so to speak. So really, when we're looking at what Christian leadership looks like, uh, Paul is the best place to go. So if you turn to Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to read and then I'm going to pray for us as we begin. I'm actually going to start at verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind... Doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul's really setting out the gospel, what, we do, what Christians would describe as the gospel, the good news that Christians or anyone who believes in Christ has been reconciled with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. So he sets out the gospel, and then he goes on to explain his ministry. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church. What he's describing is that he's suffering on behalf of those who he's trying to reach, those who he's writing to um, in Colossae. Of which I became a steward, a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, he's describing the gospel and saying that the very center of this gospel is the idea that now, as, as if you're a Christian, that Christ has come to live in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that actually you have an eternity, uh, a future hope, uh, not just a hope, but a kind of guarantee of uh, spending eternity with God. And he goes on, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full full assurance of understanding and of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this glorious gospel. Thank you for the truth that we've been united with you by, what you, by, by merit of what you did on the cross, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to taste the wonder of your gospel this evening. pray you'd help us to enjoy it, to remember the wonder of your sacrifice for us. Help us to learn from Paul what it looks like to influence our culture with the gospel, to take this wonderful good news out into the world, Lord. Amen. So this afternoon, then, we're talking about what does Christian leadership look like? What is authentic Christian leadership? Now, actually, this is not an academic exercise. This is actually highly relevant to us, whether we're Christians or not. I think the first reason this is relevant is because we experience something of a crisis of leadership in the church. Actually, it's not a day goes by, not a, a, a week or month goes by that we see a headline of a, of a Christian leader who has experienced some kind of moral failure. We see leaders who've, who've um, you know, committed adultery, all kind of sexual uh, dalliance. We've seen leaders who've built, com- um, rather than sought to preach the gospel, but instead have sought to build 
kind of commercial enterprises for their own gain. In fact, we saw a, a leader not that long ago who claimed that he'd heard from God that it was time to buy his second private jet. So, you know, there's, there's no manner, there's no limit really to the kind of um, crimes almost done in the name of Christian leadership. Just recently, we've seen um, a leading evangelical pastor um, kind of face various different accusations of sexual abuse, and the whole eldership at a really prominent church in the US stepped down. In fact, I think it was just last week we heard a story of. Um, I can't remember the state, was it Pittsburgh? Uh, one state in the US, a grand jury investigation had seen thou- uh, and uncovered almost a th- uh, thousands of cases of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. And, and that's just the recent um, past. And I'm sure in response to that, there are many who are, are kind of like wounded sheep, Christians who are looking at this saying, really, I don't know what to make of Christian leadership. I don't know how to respond when I see all these Christian leaders failing. If you're not a Christian here, I suspect many of you who aren't Christians will be put off by what you observe of kind of failed Christian leaders. You see some kind of rank hypocrisy. You see all these people who might claim to be working, ministering in the name of Christ, but actually have, have very different motivations. And so that may even uh, put you off the church, put you off Christ. Actually, so really when we see all these different counterfeit examples of, of uh, Christian leadership, which either are imperfect, ranging to utterly false, We have to ask, what is the biblical picture? What is true Christian leadership? Actually, it's not just an intellectual question. The future of the church depends on the answer. The second reason I think this is relevant for us is because Christian leadership is exemplary. Christian leadership is exemplary. What I mean by that is, actually, Christian leadership is intended to be an example of what it means to follow Christ. Many of the commands in the New Testament, many of the different requirements for leadership in the New Testament really mirror what is just a normal Christian life. Think about 1 Timothy, where Paul tells um, Timothy that the overseers are not to be given to drunkenness. Well, actually, we know that that's a a calling for all of those who follow Christ, not to get drunk. 1 Timothy 3, it talks about elders being hospitable. Elsewhere in the New Testament, that instruction of hospitality is meant to be a hallmark of the Christian life. Actually, many of the requirements, except uh, for the ability to teach, many of the requirements for Christian leadership are actually nothing more than... um, the Christian life lived out authentically and, and, and faithfully. Really what I'm arguing is that leadership is not some sort of special priestly class. It's not some sort of um, extra special group with, with different requirements. Actually, it's um, really a picture of what the Christian life looks like. So when we hear the instructions, when we see this model of leadership that Paul is giving us this afternoon, actually we have to say this is for us too. This is for everyone, whether or not you aspire to a kind of position of authority in the church. Actually, this is a model and pattern that we are all called to emulate if we follow Christ. The third reason I think this is relevant is because actually I think we need a broader understanding of leadership. Many of us think of leadership in terms of uh, positions of authority. So if you think if someone's a leader at work, it's because they've got a number of people reporting to them. But I want to argue actually for a much broader definition of leadership. And think about... um, If you think about Paul, clearly he's got a position of authority. He's an apostle. He's been given that kind of responsibility and authority over God's church. But he's also really an influential person. Really, what what it characterizes Paul's influence, uh, characterizes Paul's leadership, is really influence. That he influences many others towards Christ. Many of those who, who follow Christ, but also those who don't follow Christ, he leads them to him, and then they choose to follow him themselves. So, really, what I want to argue today really is that leadership is influence. And actually, that if you're a Christian, that you've been given a place um, to do that, that that's actually your responsibility, that's your calling to be involved in influencing others towards Christ. Now, I think we have many opportunities to do this. If you're a parent, you have an opportunity to influence your children to Christ. If you have housemates, you have to ask yourself the question, will they be attracted to Christ from observing your life, from the conversations you have? If you work in a workplace, you have to ask yourself, will your colleagues say, Actually, yeah, I'm really interested in what that guy believes because I observe his life and I'm attracted to the way he lives. I'm attracted to something in him. Or will they say, actually, that's the very last thing I want. When I observe his life, whatever he believes, I want nothing to do with it because that life is a very unattractive one. So actually, we all have an opportunity to influence those around us. 
Actually, even in church, we have relationships, we have friendships, and we actually have a, a kind of, as I'm going to explain a bit later, a kind of responsibility even to be able to draw our brothers and sisters towards Christ. It doesn't end just outside the church. It's something we do inside the church. What I'm really arguing against is some kind of individualistic Christianity where, where really the only person who's affected by your faith is you. Actually, I'm arguing that it, it cannot be contained to yourself. Actually, it must go wider than that. It must start to affect those around you. Now, I'm not saying that many of you will find this easy, but actually I want to show you from Paul's example how this is possible. In fact, you may look at Paul and say, I wonder how he does it. How does he have such a passion, such a willingness to sacrifice and and an effectiveness in doing it to point others to Christ? And really, actually, I want to argue today that the, the key to Paul's ministry, the secret to his success, so to speak, is actually simpler than you realize. It's the gospel, the, the truth that we've been praying about, we've been worshipping, we've been celebrating. Um, and you can see it in those first couple of few verses that I read, verse 21 to 22. The idea that we've been reconciled to God, that despite the fact that we've lived a life rejecting God, that God has accepted us in Christ, that we are reconciled to him, that we are forgiven, that we now stand before him knowing that we are his children. That is the, the very essence of the gospel. And that truth has been life-changing for Paul. And actually, it's the reason he's able to then go out and, uh, and pursue others, uh, influencing others towards Christ. It's the basis of his ministry. Actually, I want to argue that when you properly understand the gospel that Paul is so uh, excited about, so passionate about, actually it will radically change your attitude. It will radically change your ability to influence others towards Christ. Many of you have written off the possibility that you could be used in this way. I want to show you actually how the gospel makes you, um, really enables you to have this kind of gospel leadership in your life. I want to show you three ways that the gospel is the very center of Paul's leadership, and how it makes him a very different type of leader to any of the secular models of leadership that we have in our culture. But I also want to show you how that same gospel then works its way out in your life, and actually will make you a very different type of leader, and it'll enable you to influence those around you towards Christ. So I want to take you to the first point then. The gospel enables you to sacrifice. The gospel enables you to sacrifice. Really, the very hallmark of Paul's ministry is his willingness to sacrifice himself. You can see this in the beginning, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I rejoice in my sufferings. He's talking about the sacrifice that he's made, talking about the sufferings that he experiences in his uh, desire to take the gospel around uh, the Roman Empire. Think about the way he is writing this letter from prison. Think about the way he's willing to lay down his reputation. You know, this is a guy who was being trained under Gamaliel, uh, one of the foremost authorities in the Jewish religion at the time. He would have been a respected teacher, but he's thrown that all away. He's willing to renounce his reputation. In one part of the, in Corinthians, he describes the apostles as the scum of the world. He's willing to be considered the scum of the world. He's forsaken his reputation. He's forsaken his freedom. He's for, probably forsaken the relationships he has with his community. Many of his community would have turned on him. So he's willing to sacrifice a lot in the pursuit of sharing the gospel. He's experienced rejection from his own people. He's left comfort. Actually, the verse goes on when it describes filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. And when you hear that, filling up what is lacking, you immediately think, well, hang on a minute, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, he can't be saying that Christ's afflictions, Christ's suffering, is insufficient as an atonement for your sins, because that would go against everything he says elsewhere. So he's not saying that Christ's death on the cross is not sufficient to pay the penalty for your sins. If you think about this, the message of the gospel and the people, what's the, what's the missing link? What's the, what is lacking when you think you've got the message and you've got the people? There needs to be a messenger. There needs to be one who communicates the gospel to the people for it to have any effect. If there's no messenger, then the gospel is just tucked away in a corner. It's not changing lives. For the gospel to have an impact, it needs a messenger. So what Paul's describing here is that he is... Um, providing that role. He is the messenger for the gospel. What's interesting is that as he goes about communicating this news around the Roman Empire, he's experiencing suffering. So he's almost a model, a picture of the, of the news of Christ's suffering that he's proclaiming. He's like a picture, he's like a living um, image of what he's telling people. Christ suffered for you, and in that I'm suffering and pointing to Christ's suffering. 
So Paul is a picture of what he's proclaiming. Actually, when we go out and experience suffering in the name of Christ, actually there's something there that means we're actually pointing to the one who suffered for us once for all time. But interestingly, Paul is able to rejoice in his suffering. He's happy despite the suffering that he's experiencing, presumably because he can see a bigger picture. He can see a, um, a, re- a rationale, a higher purpose to his suffering, that the gospel is going out and lives are being changed. But I think probably most of us would not share Paul's sentiment. Paul's attitude to suffering will jar with many of you. We find it hard to understand. I think that re- the reason for this is because the attitude of our culture towards suffering is, is really the opposite of Paul's. We, we spend our lives trying to minimize the amount of suffering in our lives. We have a whole technology ecosystem trying to make our lives as convenient and comfortable as possible. We've got TV entertainment on demand. We've got uh, transport on demand, food on demand. I, I love all these things. Don't get me wrong, they're great. But actually, we've, we've um, lived such a comfortable and, and almost uh, easy life Actually, many of us don't experience, if you, com- if you consider experience in 21st century London versus uh, all of history, if you consider 21st century London versus the rest of the world, actually we have comparably low levels of suffering. We've managed much of the suffering out of our lives. And so I think that's made us somewhat allergic to suffering. We're very unused to being able to cope with suffering. I just think about um, recently, uh, Jen and I potentially dream one day, not in the near future, um, but one day going to maybe plant a church in the Middle East. And uh, we went to a city in the Middle East on holiday uh, earlier this year, and we were thinking, you know, we're going to go there, we're going to get excited, we're going to start to get pumped about one day going to plant a church there. And um, really our first reaction for the first few days was, and this is, by the way, a pretty Western city, our first reaction was, oh, this is a little bit uncomfortable. And, you know, the tap doesn't quite work, and maybe the people are a little bit less friendly than London, which I know is hard to believe. Uh, um, it's not as comfortable, and actually to live the kind of comfortable life that we live in London, it's going to be more expensive. So our first reaction was really, oh, this is going to be a little bit costly. And we'd only been in the country for like a few days. Actually, we realized that we're, we were too accustomed to the comfortable life. Actually, I think probably the biggest problem with when we hear this, uh, Paul's description of his suffering, is that we've forgotten that following Christ is costly. We've forgotten that following Christ is costly. See, actually, at the very essence of the call to follow Christ is, is, is one of self-denial. Jesus puts it like this in Luke's Gospel. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him, take up, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, just in case you're not clear, taking up your cross shouldn't sound like an appetizing idea. A cross is the instrument of torture. It's uh, the kind of death that people would suffer that is almost like Roman citizens wouldn't even want to talk about it. It's that gruesome, that brutal. And Paul's Paul saying, or Jesus is saying, you're taking up your cross daily. You're dying to self daily. It's not just that when you come to Christ, it's actually something that continues as we follow Christ. Actually, there's a possibility that in following Christ, we'll have to die to comfort, die to security, die to our reputations. Perhaps we will think we're fools. You know, persecution is part of the expected life of following Christ. Jesus said, if, you hate, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Actually, that's been the norm throughout history. It's, we're in an unusual period where we don't really experience persecution in, in London. But, but in, throughout history and throughout the world, persecution is, is really commonplace. Maybe, it will, maybe we'll have to die to wealth. Maybe God will call you to go abroad and, and go on missions and you'll, you'll leave your well-paying London career behind and, and go and do humanitarian work. And that will be a, a sacrifice. You'll be saying no to wealth. Maybe we might have to die to the approval of family or friends. I think if you're a Muslim or a Hindu and you come to follow Christ, it's likely that your family and friends will reject you. It's likely that people will think you're weird. I mean, even, even if you're not uh, from another religion, actually, in this culture, there's going to be something of a, this, you're a bit unusual. There's going to be, so dying, following Jesus is going to involve dying to all sorts of things. And then following Christ may well mean laying down our lives. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, um, a pastor in, in Nazi Germany and was one of the few voices against uh, the Nazi regime, was kind of a, stayed faithful to Christ. Uh, he, dis- he has this uh, quote that describes the Christian life. He says, The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. 
When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So actually, following Christ may mean saying no to some of the desires that feel most intrinsic to us. Say you're a a single person and um, you've resolved that following uh, Christ means uh, only dating Christians. And say um, you've you've chosen to be faithful to Christ and then someone uh, comes to you, they're not a Christian and they want to date you. Um, Actually, saying no to that will be difficult. Actually, when you're saying no to that person, you're really, you're, you're in some way dying to that desire for a relationship inside you that we, I would hazard a guess, that the majority of us experience. You're dying to that desire, that human instinct to be loved. Actually, there's all sorts of different ways that following Christ will mean dying to the things that feel most precious to us. Of course, Christ's offer to us is an even greater love than the love that we'd be saying no to in that situation. But I'd be surprised if it didn't feel difficult. Really, my, my central concern is that We've been, in our culture, we've been bred into us is the idea that if something's difficult, it must be wrong. If it's difficult, it must be wrong. I'm doing the wrong thing. I change, is it too difficult? I'm going to change career. Or living with these housemates, a bit difficult, I'm going to move out. So we've been bred into us the idea that things are difficult, we've got to change it. But actually, I'm saying that following Christ may well feel difficult at times, may well feel painful even, and that's okay. Actually, if you never have a cost involved in following Christ, then I might ask you, are you really following Christ or are you following a sanitized version of your own making? One who doesn't challenge you in ways that, you, um, that may make demands on your life. But I'd go further this and say to pursue uh, gospel leadership, to be involved in influencing the culture around us, comes with an even greater cost. Uh, Paul describes the cost that he faces in, in taking the gospel around uh, the Roman Empire. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul describes a tremendous physical cost, a physical uh, persecution, really. You just have to think that this is, he's setting a pattern that has been continued to this day. Think about the missionaries of the 18th and 19th century who, who took the gospel from places like the UK all around the world and took their coffins with them. They knew that following Christ to this faraway land had such risks involved at that time that it may well mean their certain death. So there's always a risk, there was a cost involved in, in pursuing this gospel adventure, in taking the gospel out to the nations. But there's also this kind of pressure and anxiety that he describes at the end, really, of caring for the flock. What he's saying is really caring for the brothers and sisters um, It's going to involve perseverance. He describes in the passage in Colossians that toil, that struggle on their behalf. What he's really describing is that actually when you invest in others, that's going to be costly. If you choose to invest in other people's lives, if you choose to uh, spend time with people, to care for people, to to take a stake in their growth in Christ, that's actually going to be costly. That's going to involve sacrifice. Actually, think about parents. They're a brilliant picture of this. Uh, Actually, Paul uh, even describes himself as a, a nursing mother at one point in uh, Thessalonians. We're going to come back to that. But, the, but you think about parents. There's a struggle, there's a burden, there's a cost in caring for the family. But of course, there's also a joy because that they love the people they're caring for. Actually, this is not just a, a kind of, um, how can I put it, exotic adventure. It's not just for, for those who go overseas. Actually, this is true for all of us. I've been reading this fantastic book this week, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, by a lady called Rosaria Butterfield. She used to be a professor of English at Syracuse University in the US. She's now a pastor's wife. And she describes this incredible um, ministry of hospitality. They open their home. They're uh, investing in their neighbors. Neighbors are coming over. And as they do that, they're sharing their lives with their friends. And they're they're sharing their faith. And a number of people come to faith. It's an incredible book. I would encourage you to to buy it and read it. but she describes the cost involved. It's a, it's a wonderful book, but it takes a moment just to describe the cost. 
She says, while others brag about how cheap they are when it comes to hospitality, Kent and I budget for it, and it hurts. Practicing daily, ordinary Christian hospitality doubles our grocery budget and sometimes triples it. There are vacations we do not take, house projects that never get started, entertainment habits that never get an open door, new cars and gadgets that we don't even bother coveting. Our children will never be Olympic-level soccer stars, wear designer clothes, or have social calendars requiring a staff of drivers. Instead, my children build forts and catch frogs in the backyard, eating popsicles in trees, and bring neighborhood kids to dinner and devotions when the bell rings. It costs money and time and heartache to run a house that values radically ordinary hospitality and nightly table fellowship, and we are all in. Over the past 16 years of marriage, we've given away a lot of things. We give away many meals each week, those we serve here, those we serve at church, those we send in pyrex pans to neighbors who have new babies or new knees. We give away our time. We share our house. We don't rent space in our house. If we did that, we wouldn't be able to give it away. We give away cars when we've had the means to do so. And we've never suffered for the absence of anything. So there's a cost to the radical uh, investment, the willingness to open your life up and invest in others. Actually, I would argue, really, to do anything significant in your life has a cost. Think about learning a musical instrument. If you want to be a, one of those musical uh, maestros, It takes thousands of hours of, of um, practice and, and learning. It doesn't say it's like 10,000 hours to, do, to, be good at, to be good at something, to develop a habit, or maybe just to be excellent. Um, to be a true genius. There you go, 10,000 hours. Only 10,000 hours to be a true genius. Um, really, what I'm arguing is that actually to do anything well in life, to really, be, and, and of course, mission is no exception to that, to be able to influence those people around you. It takes time. It takes investment. It takes commitment. So I think the biggest risk for us then is that we say no to gospel leadership, that we say no to mission in hard places because we've imbibed the cultural idolatry of comfort. We say no to investing our lives and our friends and our colleagues and seeking to help them follow Jesus because it just feels a bit too much effort. We shrink back from the calling of God on our lives because it just feels too difficult. What a tragic shame that would be that we'd be like the, the frogs who've been boiled slowly in boiling water to the point of death. Like, it isn't that we were neutralized by someone telling us that we couldn't share our faith and we couldn't influence the culture. It's that slowly we just imbibed the values of the culture and just said, you know what, being comfortable is great. And suddenly we're no longer dangerous to our culture. Suddenly we're just, you know, in our holy huddle, enjoying our, our wonderful fellowship, but not influencing the people around us. So how is it possible then? How do we overcome What feels intrinsic to us? How do we learn to sacrifice like Paul? Well, really, the gospel is the proper antidote to our aversion to sacrifice. The gospel enables us to sacrifice like Paul. See, Paul is not defeated by his suffering, and you can hear this. He says, We were sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. He seems to have an, Im an immunity to the difficult circumstances that he's experiencing. And really, it's because he has a greater and more significant reality in the gospel that speaks louder than his circumstances. He's rich in Christ. So in verse 27, he describes the hope of the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He has the hope of eternal life, the knowledge that Christ is in him. This future hope and the present reality that God is at work in his life is more significant to him than any suffering he faces. Philippians 3, he says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What he's saying is everything I counted previously as good actually is loss. Actually, there's something of surpassing worth, something of more value to me, and that is the gospel. And he's had superior gain. Actually, what he's saying is that when he says no to these other things, when he says no to comfort, no to laying down these other, other potential idols, I suppose, Really, what I'm saying is that he sees them ultimately as fripperies. Actually, they're nothing compared to the permanent, secure knowledge that he is Christ, the knowledge that he has an eternal destiny with God. Actually, that's more secure, more permanent than any promotion we might uh, value or, or more definitive than the changing appetites of friendships or other things that we might value. Actually, this is a truth that's not circumstantial, but permanent and secure. It's really the difference between joy and happiness. There's a kind of underlying joy that Paul experiences. That even if maybe he's not experiencing the kind of peaks of happiness because of the events of his life, he has an underlying joy in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that sacrifice will never feel hard, 
But I will say it's something that's possible. Because you're saying no to something that is ultimately of less value than of what you've already received in Christ. If this is not your felt experience, and I know at times it doesn't feel like the riches in Christ were very valuable to you, then I think what it is is that you maybe have lost sight of the value of, 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 uh, of fellowship with Christ, the, the security, the knowledge of the cross, that actually what it calls us to is to, to come back to Christ and to say, Lord, will you show me again the, the riches that I have in you? Ultimately, Jesus' promises, when we make sacrifices for him, it will always be worth it. In Mark chapter 10, he says this, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. Not saying it won't be difficult. He's saying there will be persecution, but he's saying actually there's an eternal reward. There's even a reward in this time. So actually if those who've left family for following Christ got a new family in the church. Those who've left home have a new eternal home with Christ of much more value. Those who've left fields, those who've left wealth behind, actually have eternal rewards in heaven. So there's always, uh, although it feels at times costly, there's always, uh, the balance is always in our favour for those who follow Christ. Second principle that we see in Paul's ministry then, the gospel will change your attitude to people. If you understand Paul's why, if you understand what motivates Paul in ministry, it's a love for the people he's sacrificing himself for. Undoubtedly, he has a a passion for God's glory, but this manifests itself in a love for the people that he's reaching. It's why he's willing, in verse 24, to suffer for their sake. It's why he's willing to, to toil, in verse 29, to present them mature. It's why he has a great struggle for them in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. So he's driven by a vision of how their lives could be changed by the gospel. And you can tell by, the, by his actions how much he cares for them. And by the way, he doesn't even, hasn't even met these people. Likelihood is this church was planted by Epaphras, one of, his, uh, one of his guys. So actually he hasn't even met these people and yet he loves them, he toils for them. He's, he's working away for them. And I said earlier, 1 Thessalonians, he describes himself as a nursing mother. So affectionately desirous of you ready to share the gospel of God and our own selves. Think about that picture of a nursing mother. I've got one very close proximity to me most of the time. It's a picture of profound devotion, a picture of sacrifice. You give up your life, your time to be on call at any point to be able to feed your baby. And of course, if you ask any nursing mother, they'll say it's a pleasure. They're happy to do that. Why? Because they love their child so much, they're willing to sacrifice themselves. So Paul has a love for the people that he's serving. This is the driving force in Paul's ministry. But it's not just warm and fuzzy feelings. This is a a driving force that leads into action. It's a proactive love. It's a kind of action-orientated love. It's no mere feeling. He doesn't just say, oh, I love love you guys. He's, He's driven to action on their behalf. Really what it says then is gospel leadership is founded in love. Any desire to lead others or influence others towards Christ must come from a love for those people. Now, some of you might look at the idea of evangelism, the idea of influencing others around you and say, isn't this just a little bit manipulative? Isn't this just a kind of Christian empire building? You know, isn't it just like kind of a sale, Christian salesmanship where we're just trying to, trying to get numbers on a board and just trying to build people into our club? Really, actually, this says it's very different to that, actually, because the desire to influence others comes from a love for those people. Actually, this is the hallmark of this gospel leadership that Paul demonstrates, is that it's driven out of love for them. Now, I think the problem also lies is because our understanding of love, stay with me, uh, our understanding of love in this 21st century London is often very non-interventionist. If you love someone, you just let them get on with things. Let them, let you do you, that kind of phrase. That idea that really loving someone allows, that means allowing them to, to really do or feel what they want. But actually real love, think about if you've got a close friend and you see them um, in an abusive relationship. Well, real love would step in. Real love wouldn't stand back and say, yeah, you, you do you. Real love would say, no, actually I care about you and I want you out of this abusive relationship. So real love is interventionist. Real love 
steps in to help those around us. Real love doesn't stand back. So real love should be our driving motivation. If those of you who, who want to lead in some way, want kind of a position of authority in Christ church, need to, understand, need to check your heart and say, am I doing this because I love the people of the body of Christ or am I doing this because I would like a position? Think about all the pictures of, of leadership in the New Testament, that, that good shepherd that Jesus spoke about in John 10 or um, the, the, the father of the household of faith. These are pictures of love, pictures of sacrifice. Really, when we understand the gospel, when we understand the reality of God's love, we will start to carry something of this same passion for our brothers and sisters and our same passion that others would encounter this love in the gospel. I think the problem is that many of us, our faith is too individualistic. Our vision of maturity is saying, you know, I want to grow up in Christ. I want to be a mature Christian. You might say, well, it involves being obedient, loving God, Bible knowledge, community, maybe you know, having a family, that's great if that's God's will. You might have all these different understandings of what maturity looks like. Yeah, those, are, those are great as far as they go, and they're all good. But they're missing something. You see, that our faith must have an outward dimension. You look at the book of Acts. The trajectory of the book of Acts is that the gospel is going out, that it changes the world. That Jesus' vision for the disciples is not that they stay in the upper room as a holy huddle and just you know, Bible memorization and just suddenly become nicer and loving to each other. No, Jesus' vision is that as, they, as the, they're filled with the Spirit, they go out into the world. You cannot be mature, you cannot really be faithful to Christ if your faith doesn't have this outward dimension. We've imbibed the individualism of our city, or we've given in to fear. I think many of us have drawn a, a circle around ourselves, around church, and said, this is where God is at work, but, many of us, but we don't really... Uh, have, a, have a gospel, have an understanding even of, of God, that he will be at work outside the circle that we've drawn around ourselves. Actually, the gospel is much bigger than that. Actually, our God is much bigger than that. To truly understand the gospel is to understand that it's not just a declaration of personal salvation, as wonderful as that is. Actually, the gospel is a fundamentally new way of seeing the world. Many of us look at London and it's a we-, we see a wealthy, a prosperous city, um, See a global city where many people are comfortable and happy. But actually, verse 21 and verse 22 of this passage in Colossians would tell us that actually it's very different. Actually, there are many people who are alienated from God. Many people living separated from their fundamental purpose to know God and enjoy him. Many people are living unaware of the central reason for their existence and headed for an eternity away from God. And actually, we have the answer. We've been reconciled to God. We know the way to God. We know the way that these people can find the central reason for their existence. I think the problem is it's very easy to detach ourselves from this narrative. Spend your time focused on the narrative of, of, the, of the life around you. You know, I, th- I used to lead a sales team for an edtech startup, and uh, there was a 10-week sales cycle. And in that 10-week sales cycle, we had to require hundreds of schools around the country to join our, our maths tuition. And during those 10 weeks, I would find myself progressively wrapped up in this sales cycle. So I was waking up in the morning, thinking about the sales cycle, going to bed at night, thinking about how many schools we'd acquired, and slowly this narrative started to envelop my life. And I became distracted from almost anything else. And then you'd come out at the end of the cycle and you'd be like, oh yes, actually the world is not, does not revolve around how many schools we've acquired. Oh, this is not the most important thing in the world. But you just get swept up into this narrative. So easy that we get distracted from what I would argue in Colossians is the central narrative of our existence. The truth, the reality that we live in a world where many people don't know Christ. Actually, this is the reality that is, almost speaks louder than any other reality about our lives. We can either bury our head in the sand or we can grab this reality with both hands like Paul does. I think many of us have something of a cognitive dissonance. We almost detach ourselves from this reality because it's just a little bit too painful, just a little too much work, and it's going to have huge implications for our lives. And actually, the reality is that Paul is showing us a different way. that We can actually grab hold of this and embrace this and make this the central purpose of our lives. So actually, this changes the way you see everything. It changes the way you go to work. Maybe you think at work, oh, this is, how am I going to get on here? How am I going to make myself invaluable? You're probably not asking yourself the question, how might the Lord use me here? How might the Lord uh, influence others towards Christ through me? Who is God working on, God working in, that he might use me in their lives? Or if you're a student, I know there are a few of you here, only a few of you here, but actually you have to ask, 
How might God use me in the two or three years that I'm here? What will God use me while I'm at university? Actually, this, pro- this proactive love is not just for outside the church, so to speak. Actually, it should manifest itself inside our church community. The gospel should change our attitude towards our fellow Christians. Two weeks ago, we talked about how the, how the gospel changes, gives us a love for the saints, helps us to, to see um, that these people are brothers and sisters. It gives us a new solidarity, a new sense of, of, of um, kinship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, a new sense of belonging. But actually, Paul is modeling more than that in this passage. See, Paul includes in his love for the saints a proactive uh, desire to be helping these brothers and sisters grow in their faith. Actually, the end goal of his love, you see this in verse 28, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What his love, Paul's love is not just a kind of enjoyment of community, which is wonderful and I'm a big believer in our barbecues together and all the ways that we enjoy community together. It's absolutely fantastic. But it's more than that. Actually, Paul's love extends to feeling a stake, a responsibility even, for our brothers and sisters and how they grow in Christ. I wonder if you've ever considered whether you have a role in helping your brothers and sisters to mature in their faith, to help them grow in their biblical understanding, to help them understand more of God's love, to help them conform their lives to God's will, to um, help them overcome a battle with sin in some way. Actually, I think you have more of a role than you realize. Paul describes this in Ephesians 4. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Now, you might hear that and say, oh, it's talking about apostles, teachers, prophets. They're the ones equipping the body of Christ. No, he says, they equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So these different people, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, are there to equip the saints. So the saints, that's you if you're a brother, if you're a follower of Jesus, they would be the ones doing the work of ministry, that they would be building up the body. So actually what I have in mind here is a picture where where all of us are influencing each other. All of us are encouraging each other. Maybe you're meeting up and saying, look, I'm really struggling with this. I'll be honest with you. I'm really struggling with this sin. Will you pray for me? Have you got any advice? Maybe you're opening the Bible together. You're saying, well, what do you make of Jesus? Or how does, how, how does this, what does this look like for you to follow Jesus in your workplace? There's all sorts of different ways, but I, I kind of don't want to circumscribe the details here. I don't want to pr- uh, say it looks exactly like this, but I want to encourage you to, to turn inwards for a moment and see that you have a responsibility. You have a, a stake in helping your brothers and sisters to grow mature in Christ. Actually, we're not just a countercultural community that spends time with each other. We're a countercultural community that helps each other to grow. And when we do that, I think we'll see such a beautiful church. But how is this possible? If we hear all of this and we see, okay, yeah, I want to sacrifice. I want to lay down my life for the gospel. I want to love my brother and sister. I want to be investing and helping them grow in Christ. How do we do that? Well, actually, we see that in Paul's life. That you can't, this brings me on to my third point for this afternoon. You can't lead others without the gospel. You can't lead others without the gospel. As well as providing the motivation for his ministry, the gospel is also the means for Paul's ministry. It's also the way that he seeks to build up these other Christians, to help them to grow in Christ. Verse 25, he describes the center of his uh, ministry, this stewardship, as making the word of God fully known. So he's saying, actually, that. My role in this, I've got a responsibility of these people. My job is to bring the word of God to them. Actually, he describes in verse 28 how he's proclaiming Christ. He just, in, in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says uh, he wants them to come to a full knowledge of God's mystery. When it talks about God's mystery, it's usually describing the gospel. So really what we're saying is that the gospel is at the foundation of Paul's ministry. This truth that you've been reconciled with God is the, is the means by which Paul seeks to help these Christians grow. And this should challenge us in a couple of ways. I think for those who are more relational among us, sometimes we think that really the way to help my brother and sister, to, help, to encourage them, is to love them. Of course, that's absolutely true. To, uh, to love them, to listen to them, that's a really good thing. Think about someone who's struggling with sin in their lives. Maybe someone's saying, look, I'm really struggling with pornography. You know, if, you're, if, you're, if your brother is struggling in that way, you're sitting down with them, 
loving them, showing them a non-judgmental attitude, absolutely essential. If you don't do that, you've got nothing. But if you just love them, if you just listen to them, and that's all you do, actually, that's not enough. Actually, they need to have um, maybe a warning, reminding them that this is dangerous, reminding them that sin doesn't want the best for your life. Actually, to speak truth into that situation is absolutely essential. Otherwise, we're just kind of stroking people. <laughs> actually, there's a truth that will change their situation. But actually, it also, the other, the other side of things, I think it should challenge us, that it's not enough just to tell people what to do. Again, someone comes to you. Say they're anxious. Say they're really struggling with anxiety. And if, ever, if anyone has ever come to you struggling with anxiety and you tell them, don't be anxious, you'll, they'll tell you that is usually unhelpful advice. <laughs> usually that doesn't really answer the question in their life. Actually, if you want to help someone, you need to get underneath the surface of their life. You need to get to the heart. What we're really talking about is what their motivations are. And actually, the gospel speaks to their motivations. It speaks to the why they're doing something. So if your friend is stressed, say they're stressed about their exams, or, or, or say they're stressed and you, and you find out they're stressed about their exams. Actually, the gospel speaks right to that. Because it says, actually, because you are, are saved, you're reconciled to God, actually, the, the, these exams do not say the final word about you. They're not the ultimate in your life. Actually, even if you fail, it might feel really hard. Actually, it's not the end of the world. So the gospel speaks to those motivations, the underlying causes of anxiety in our lives. Actually, the gospel is essential to our ministry to one another. If you want to help your friends, actually, we have a role to speak the gospel to one another, to remind each other of the truth. Because let's be honest, we're pretty forgetful people. Actually, it speaks also to, to the questions that our friends who aren't Christians would ask us. Those who would say, religion, isn't that just kind of a set of rules? Actually, the gospel speaks right to that. It says, no, actually, it's a relationship with God, one through the cross, with some implications for your life. See, sermon two weeks ago. <laughs> actually, the gospel is central to our ministry and our influence and our leadership in the world. So as we close, I want to leave you with a couple of ideas. Um, first one really is that there's a calling to gospel influence. This is not just for super-Christians like Paul. As we hear the precious truth of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, I want, to, I want you to let that challenge you to spend yourself in his service, to die to self, to pursue a life poured out for him, advancing the gospel. You may see Paul's example and say, actually, no, my faith has been too comfortable. Actually, I've... I've probably uh, taken out something of the cost. I've, I've subtly forgotten that, that actually that's part of what it means to follow Christ. So maybe you want to say today to God, actually, I'm willing to die to self. I'm willing to lay down my life. I'm willing to lay everything down in the pursuit of the mission that you've called us to. Others, you might say, yeah, actually, probably my life has been too self-focused. Actually, I need to grab hold of the bigger vision, the gospel reality that, that actually all of London is, is, um, is out there waiting for the gospel. Actually, would you change the way I see this city to see the opportunities, to see something of, actually, even the truth that the harvest is plentiful, that God has sent us out into the world with a promise that there are people out there who he's calling to follow him, and he wants to use us to help them to follow him. Actually, this may be hard, but I really don't want the cost to put us off. Um, as we prayed before the service, um, someone felt from the Lord this verse, which I think sums up our, should be our attitude in all of this. In Revelation 12, it talks about the um, accuser of the brothers who accuses them day, day and night before God. And then it says, this is their strategy against him. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They conquered by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and not loving their lives unto death. Christ's calling will have a cost, but it's one that's totally worth it. The second thought I want to leave you with is there are some of you here who hear this and just feel utterly paralyzed. Maybe you feel a sense of failure. You sense that actually I'm nothing like Paul, and when I look at the lack of gospel influence in my life, I, I feel like I could never be like that. To leave th this topic like that would be utterly wrong because Paul is preaching the gospel to us. Actually, the gospel speaks to our failures and our inadequacy. It says, actually, we're forgiven. We're reconciled. There's a new start. Actually, of course, we don't match up. 
That's the beginning of the gospel, that we don't match up to his standards. But actually, there's a calling to begin again, a calling to come to the cross afresh and to leave our inadequacies and our failures with him and to ask God to fill us afresh and to send us out on his mission. It's really important as we hear this gospel leadership, as we hear this calling, we remember the reality that Paul says in verse 29, I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That any call to go and influence our nation, any call starts with the premise that Christ is in us. That those of us who follow him, that the Holy Spirit has come to make his home in us. And actually we're not doing this on our own. Why doesn't the band come up and I'm going to pray for us? I'm going to start, let's start, uh, we're going to start by singing um, When I Survey, is that right? We're going to start by singing When I Survey, and as we sing this together and we take communion, I want to really give us an opportunity to come back to the cross, just to lay our failures and inadequacies before him, to recognize that our lives don't match up to the calling that God's given us, and to remember his forgiveness, to remember his wonderful grace that we were praying about before. Why don't you stand, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this absolutely precious truth that though we were alienated from you, though we were living lives hostile to you, that you have reconciled yourself with us, that you've reconciled us with you. That we come to you with all our fears and failures and we come and leave them with you at the cross. We come and know that even of our lives haven't lacked this gospel influence that we are yours that we are reconciled to you. Lord, we want to, um, to change our direction. We want to be about your business. We want to, to, um, to spend ourselves in your service, to lay down our lives, to grasp hold of the sacrifice that you're calling us to. But we want to start by coming back to your cross, start by remembering your wonderful grace to us, Lord, to grasp hold of that with both hands, Lord to taste that as we take the bread and drink the wine. We want to celebrate what you've done for us on the cross, Lord. We want to celebrate the reality of where we stand because of what you did, Lord. We thank you for that precious truth, Lord. We thank you that you've come into our lives, Lord, that you've reconciled us to you. Amen.